Hey everybody and welcome to the Fathoming Heavy Podcast. My name is Andrew and today my guest is Rebecca Vernon, guitarist, vocalist of the Salt Lake City Avant Doom Band Sub Rosa. I met up with Rebecca at the Psycho Las Vegas Festival a couple of days after Sub Rosa played an absolutely crushing set with Yob, and by the time we sat down the festival was about half over, so we spend the first few minutes of our conversation just chatting about what we've seen before getting into Rebecca's story. Uh, extra special thanks to Rebecca for taking the time to do this with me uh, and helping me to create what I think is a very special 20th episode. Uh, as always, you can email me at fathomingheavy at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Go to iTunes, give a rating. It always helps and is just a nice thing to do. Uh, all right, so enough of this. Let's do it. really great bands and um I think um it's hard to pick a favorite there were so many I think some highlights were um the Brian Jonestown Massacre um I'm a huge fan of that band and stayed up really late to see them yeah they went on really late yes they went on an hour late so um I've seen them several times before and every time it's um it's you never know what you're going to get. You don't know if there's going to be a breakdown on stage or um, a dramatic reading of a letter from one's mother mm-hmm. that ha- that happened at a show in New York. Um, but this time it went relatively smoothly, considering that it went on so late. Um, and then I really, really loved uh, the Cult of Luna Julie Christmas show. That was... Uh, Incredible. I had never seen her perform live before. I missed the Made Out of Babies uh, Battle of Mice boat. And so seeing her perform live was just incredible. Um, she's the What she can do with her voice is, I'm in awe of it. I was like taking mental notes. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely very humbling to see such an amazing vocalist. Yeah. And, with, and with so much raw emotion and rage, like right there at the surface. So, yeah, I really admired that. Neurosis was incredible. Always, yeah. Um, there, there was just so much. I can't even, yeah. The Melvins I saw with Kim. Um, they were especially good, I thought, this time. Yes, they were. Uh, they're just uh, very comfortable on stage. They've, uh, they're incredible. They've just maintained their integrity throughout the years, and it shows, I think. So, yeah, and it's interesting looking back on their history because um, there have been so many different uh, sort of eras of the Melvins, and some of them I'm completely down with, and others like the stuff maybe in the late '90s and early 2000s. I just didn't it didn't resonate at all, um, mm-hmm. and so it's really just kind of album to album and lineup to lineup. And I just I love Steve McDonald, who's um, playing bass for them now. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, cause I love Red Cross so much and he had a long history with them. And, um, but I saw them together back in maybe a year and a half ago and I really didn't like them very much. Um, and this was like night and day this time. It was just, they just, it was perfect. They just brought it and it just really clicked and felt like you said, like really natural. Right. Like I think they go through different, uh, eras and they're totally unafraid to explore different sounds and I agree, like some of the sounds I connect with and some of them I don't as much. I don't know, Stoner, which definitely from beginning to end was my favorite and the, the one I connect with the most. Yeah, that's an awesome one. Yeah, yeah there's just live. I've, I've liked them almost every time. I can't think of a time I haven't. Yeah. From small clubs to that giant stage. You yeah, know? yeah, I think that was the biggest stage I've ever seen them on. Yeah, I think it was for me, too. I've seen them in little clubs here in Salt Lake, so it was a huge difference. So Rosa played on Thursday with Yob. Yes, we did. And we've been wanting to play with Yob for many years. We've actually been trying to plan tours with them. 
So to be able to play two shows with them was kind of a, a life goal in a way, or at least definitely a goal that we've had for a long time. So um, we just really admire that band a lot. Um, they, they're one of a, a handful of bands who, in the doom genre, who hit on kind of an emotional or spiritual side of the genre that very few bands do. I would put Samothrace in there as well as Corrupted and Wolf Serpent and Yob and Neurosis and very few others. So in that way, they're a huge like influence on us. So, and, um, of course, uh, being around the members of the band too, I, I really look up to them as people as well. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Mike is one of my favorite people. Yes, me as well. Um, he's definitely um, a person who has been through a lot lately. And uh, throughout his life, I just feel like people look up to him. And um, there's a reason for that. He's a genuinely kind, non-judgmental person who's also um, just a, a very, he's a very humble person. And there's something about him that people are drawn to. He's like a, he's a great example, I think, for people in the scene. And Aaron as well. And um, the guys from Neurosis, too, are all like great role models and male role models, for sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> and did you have a chance to see Vol? Yes, I did. So uh, we're friends with Aesop. And it was really cool. I've seen them a couple times before. I think twice before and um it was it had so much energy you could tell they were having so much fun up there and it was really cool to see mike um performing without a guitar and it was really cool to see sigrid playing um she's another like a really strong woman in the scene uh that i look up to and um and it's always fun to see aesop cut loose so yeah yeah, I really liked watching him in Agalock all the time. And um, yeah, Agalock, I miss them. Yeah, I thought watching Mike especially, um, the last time I saw Vol, he wasn't nearly as comfortable out in mm -hmm. front without an instrument. Um, and this time, at least it didn't appear to me. And at this time, this time he just felt, it, he just was right there and looked like he was really having a good time. Right. So that was really special to see. What made you feel like he um, is more comfortable now than he was before? You know, it's hard to articulate. It, it just felt like he was just kind of flowing with the music, just in terms of how his body was working. You can tell when somebody is is really comfortable just being kind of up there, and not a lot of people are, I think, without an instrument. And he just was was right there in the moment, feeling the music, and um, it just felt like a. a a really heartfelt performance, which is not to say that the last one didn't, but it felt a little more, it just something about it felt more awkward um, to me. So it was great just to see him, mm -hmm. especially after all he's been through um, this past year, to see him up there um, 100%. Yeah, it's true. Um, if I had to perform without an instrument, I would feel, uh, it would, I would feel so vulnerable. And I think that um, like him, I, I, it would take a while to get used to, it would take like probably a year or two to really get into it. I mean, just performing live in general took me a couple years before I felt a lot more comfortable on stage. And so taking away the guitar, which I've had in front of me for 11 years would be really odd. Yeah. And I think he's, I do think he's coming to his own. And yes, I think that, um, the things that Mike has overcome lately have been incredible. Um, he's, uh, he's like a warrior. Yeah. So, yeah. So how, how did it all start for you? How did you get into heavy music? Um, so I think that it started for me, um, kind of in middle school. Uh, I had heard of Metallica before through a friend I had in elementary school, but, um, for me, um, I, I was, kind of an outcast and rejected by uh, people in school from, from third grade to eighth grade. It was pretty much nonstop uh, block of complete rejection and 
I guess what people now call bullying. Um, back then it was just being made fun of. And, um, even by, not only by classmates who I didn't know as well, but by people who are supposed to be my friends, um, just facing like the worst kind of humiliation and degradation and, you know, all kinds of things that I went through. And so I think that more than anything drew me to heavy music. Um, and so around age 11 or 12, I got into Guns N' Roses and um, no one in my family really listened to heavy music uh, past 1975 or so, you know, not, they didn't really get past classic rock. So, uh, and just the fact that they listened to classic rock was good. That exposed me to something, but I didn't really have any guidance. So what I was exposed to was from MTV, um, from the radio, just like any kid who's like cut off from culture, I guess. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I hooked onto Guns N' Roses and then Metallica, Megadeth, Slaughter, Cinderella, all the butt metal bands. I was into <laughs> the <laughs> hair metal. Is that the more PC term? I don't know. But um, so, uh, yeah, I followed that whole uh, movement really closely when I was in middle school and, you know, wore the T-shirts and had a framed picture of Guns N' Roses on my dresser that was black and white. And I just loved them so much. Um, and I was really drawn to the defiance and the attitude, the strength, um, the individuality, kind of the raw, visceral nature of the music. And it made me feel strong. Um, and it was something I could hold on to as kind of, um, like a feeling of rebellion, like I'm not like the rest of you and I'm okay with that. You know, or maybe it was even a reaction like you're rejecting me and I'm rejecting you first though. So mm -hmm. I'm comfortable with that. And um, people definitely didn't admire me for that at all. You'd think like, oh, they are admire the outcast girl listening to heavy metal. No, I was even more uh, despised, I guess. And Everyone then was listening to New Kids on the Block and Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. And so it just, you know, whatever a little bit of uh, credibility I had was like completely gone because I listened to heavy metal. So, And you just kind of went, went all in, it sounds like. I went all in, yes. And I had a friend in middle school, Mac Powell, skateboarder, and he would feed me. Um, Anthrax, Megadeth, and these cassette tapes because, you know, CDs were like, I don't even know if they were around in middle school, in my middle <laughs> school years yet. But yeah, we, I would listen to cassette tapes. Where'd you grow up? Um, so middle school was in Texas, and those were probably the worst years of my life. And then um, before that was Virginia, before that was Germany for eight years, seven or eight years. Um, I was born in Ohio. My dad was in the military, so... What did your parents think about, like, your, the fact that you were embracing heavy music and kind of doing your own thing? Were they worried about that at all? They were concerned, yeah. They were concerned. Um, at the same time, I have to give them credit for kind of letting me be and kind of letting me explore that music. They didn't really put the kibosh on it like a lot of conservative parents might have. My parents, um, I grew up Mormon. And they were more liberal than most uh, Mormon parents. I later discovered that I was very lucky. And so a, a more strict Mormon parent or religious parent would have come in and like, you know, ripped your cassette tapes apart and thrown them in the garbage. Um, but my parents just kind of let me listen to what I wanted. Um, the only thing that really concerned my mom was that I loved Stephen King so much. And um, I read everything that he had written up to that point. I would go to the library and just want to read horror stories and mostly Stephen King, but I would also read other horror authors and collections of horror stories. And, and, and my mom was really concerned about that. And she was just like, why are you drawn to this really violent, dark literature? You know, um, do you feel like there's something wrong and et cetera like that? So how did you answer? Because I know I was asked those same questions too. And it took me a long time to figure out an uh -huh. answer. Um, I mean, so what would you tell your parents? I didn't tell them anything back then. I would just say because I like it and because I connect with it in some way. But I think for me, it was very much about exploring reality and the way 
that other things weren't, um, mm-hmm. even in these fantastical, dark ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it still was tapping into something that I had a sense of, even at that age, that was very true and real, but that wasn't being expressed or explored in a whole lot of other ways besides that I had access to any besides heavy music and that type of literature. Did you feel like you were kind of surrounded by a fake society? Like there was a lot of shallowness around you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's how I felt as well. I I think that must've been, I mean, I, I know that has a lot to do with why I was drawn to heavy music and horror literature and things like that. It seemed more real than the society that surrounded me, I guess. But with my mother, I can't remember what I told her. I just think I told her, you know, I, I just really like it. And she didn't exactly ban me from reading it. But all I knew was that I did like it. I just really liked being scared. And I just really liked, um, yeah, other portrayals of reality. As you said, like Stephen King didn't just talk about scary things or, you know, vampires or girls that had telekinetic powers or <laughs> whatever. Um, he also explored other dimensions and uh, other ways of being and like strange realities and time warp and, and things like that. So I, I was just drawn to all of that. And I still, my favorite genre is still horror and sci-fi. But I think because of my mother's conversation, I did, it was my, my, the first thought that occurred to me, like, is something wrong with this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but later, uh, maybe even a couple years later, I looked back. And, um, I knew that it was actually cool that I liked horror and that that was something cool about me, not something that was wrong or to be ashamed of or anything. Right. And that you were okay, um, in spite of it or even because of it. Exactly. It like showed that I just saw things differently and that that was okay. Like my perspective was okay. Yeah. When did you actually start playing music? I started learning violin when I was eight. And I started playing piano when I was 12. I started learning uh, drums uh, as far as a marching band goes, uh, like snare drum and cymbals when I was 12. And then um, I started learning the drum set when I was 19. So my first real instrument in bands was when I was 19. And I was going to Brigham Young University at the time in Provo, Utah, and kind of wanted to assert my identity. And so I started taking formal drum lessons. I was very diligent. Uh, I, you know, practiced an hour a day for almost a year and joined my first band when I was 19 and, um, and then was in bands for eight or nine years after that, like nonstop. I was always in bands. I was probably in, or I was always the drummer in bands. I was probably in a dozen bands as the drummer. And I was proud of my craft and I would really try to hone it and, and get better and consciously uh, try to be a better performer. I've never had that desire with guitar. With guitar, it was just kind of like, okay, this is good enough. But with, yeah, but with drums and piano and even violin, I was far more diligent. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know why I've never been drawn to the guitar. I just always had these thoughts like, there's so many guitarists out there already. The world doesn't need another guitarist. And luckily, doom metal is not speed metal. It's not Dragon Force. And so um, I can play it being uh, like more simple chords. And I hate admitting that, but it is true um, that I just never felt this uh, huge connection with the guitar, I guess. I was more connected to the drums, the power and the primal nature of the drums. But actually I am reaching a ceiling with my skill level with writing. And so I, I have taken a year, a year and a half of guitar lessons, but was never really diligent about practice. And now I realize I'm hitting a a massive ceiling with uh, the ability to write just as far as chords and my knowledge and scales. So I am, going to start taking lessons, formal lessons again, and actually practice this time. This time. <laughs> like, and it's not out of, and it's sad because it's not out of real true desire. It's kind of out of this necessity. And I'm hoping that the, the desire will, will come more because I really would like to be a better guitarist and do the music in my mind more justice. 
that's that's what I want to do. I want to honor the music. So that's why I'm going to dedicate myself to a better guitar. Did you start playing guitar so that you could write better? Yes. So I could write it all. all. I never played okay. music before. Um, I had a nagging feeling inside me for about three years that I should, that I wanted to start writing my own music, that I had music inside me and needed to come out. But I ignored that feeling because I was really scared and I'd always played drums and I was very comfortable being in the back behind the drum set, very confident in that instrument. And, um, so to do something completely new and different and to sing in front of people as well was just so uncomfortable to me. Um, and so I avoided it. I joined a band called Stiletto. That was the kind of the last band before Sabrosa. It was an uh, all-girl punk band, played drums for them, and later guitar when I was learning guitar. But um, that whole time I just kind of put it off for three more years while I was in Stiletto. So I, I, I guess I'd been having the desire a couple years before I even joined Stiletto. So for years I'd been ignoring that feeling. And so I had a really hard summer in the, in 2005 and that's when I kind of, I went through a really hard time and I decided I need to start this band now. I need to do this thing that I've been wanting to do. So I kind of put Stiletto on hold. I put my other band Violet Run on hold. That was like a, um, we sounded a little bit like the cure. It was like dark goth music. And, um, and I started, I started Sabrosa with Sarah and we only had one amp between the two of us. And, uh, I had never played guitar before. And I, I took some quick lessons from some very good gu- guitarist friends here in Salt Lake. You could show me some basics. And, um, I took a few months of lessons from a couple people to kind of get me started. And that's how I learned our weird tuning as well. We don't play regular guitar. I don't play regular guitar tuning. And I've stuck to that tuning all this time because, because I love the sound of it so much. There's something about it. So did you finish at BYU before um, coming to uh, Salt Lake? Uh, yeah. So I finished, I finished BYU and I moved away and, um, I was actually, um, engaged and I had to face a really big decision about whether to come back to Salt Lake, um, and be part of the music scene and join bands or whether to get married. It was, it was a major turning point in my life. And it's only lately that I've really been thinking about it and appreciating it again, what a huge turning point it was. But ultimately, um, I wasn't, my heart wasn't in to, to the idea of marrying that guy and getting married. And, but I kept pushing those feelings down and, uh, telling myself like, well, I already committed to doing this. I made a commitment uh, to getting married and I need to, need to keep my word. Um, and so out of obligation and, you know, feeling of honor or whatever, I thought this is the path I need to take. I also was having serious doubts whether there was any happiness to be found in, in love anyway. And so I was just really cynical and, uh, yeah, I decided this is the way I need to go. But within myself, I had that feeling like, no, but what I really want to do is I want to go to Salt Lake and I want to join bands and I want to be part of the music scene. And, um, but I felt like I couldn't. And I kept wishing for something to come along and get me out of the situation I was in. It was a really big moment when I realized, actually, I have the power to get up and say no, and to have courage and to, and to actually break this off. I, I'm the only one who can do this. And it sounds so simple looking back, because now I have, I've learned from that experience and others that I have the strength to say no. Uh, even when it's difficult and I, and I might disappoint people around me or let them down or hurt them. You know, when you're in situations like that, whether it's a job or relationship, like those people will be fine. They'll go on. Um, but you're not doing them any service by staying in that situation. Um, and by not letting them go free and be with someone who, who would be really happy in that situation. So, so you were really, at kind of a crossroads and you knew that you couldn't go in both directions at the same time. Yes. And you listened to your heart and did what you knew that you needed to do, which is a huge and 
scary thing, but just an incredible, an incredible decision to make in all regards. Thank you. Yeah, I really sympathize with people who are in situations like that. And I feel a lot of almost visceral empathy for them. And almost like, um, it's like too hard for me to hear sometimes when people are in situations like that, because, or, or to know that they're they they find themselves there because I just know how horrible it is to be, to feel like you can't, you can't get free of something that, that trapped feeling. Right. Right. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. And you knew that well enough then, and you knew that if you didn't do it, then it probably would have, would have happened later, but in a much more complicated and tangled way. Exactly. I feel like, um, I feel like, uh, it would have taken me many years to break free, um, at least a couple years, if ever. And there wouldn't have been a Sabrosa probably. And if I had, well, there wouldn't have been a Sabrosa at all. If, and if I had been another band, it would have been something else. And who knows what that future or that path, that multiverse would have looked like, you know. But I'm just so relieved that I never had to experience it. And I know that I made the right decision. Like it was not the right way for me to go. And all I felt afterwards was relief. And, um, that's how, you know, you've made the right decision. I don't know. I don't know what happened to that guy. I don't know. Um, I'm sure he found someone else and he's happy today. And I hope so because that, because it wasn't the right path for him to be with me either. That's true. That goes both ways. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's huge. It was huge. Yeah, I I forget what a huge deal it was because it was from that, like I said, that I learned how to have strength later to get out of situations. But that was the first time I was really in a situation like that and really had to find that strength and somehow not listen to the voices around me, but listen to the voice inside. So, And so you did that and then moved to Salt Lake. Yes. What about the music scene in Salt Lake was so compelling for you? So the reason Salt Lake has such an amazing music scene is because there's a dominant conservative culture here, of course, and it's bred a thriving counterculture. And there's a special feeling about the music scene here. Um, it's, it's like the people that make up the music scene don't fit in here, don't fit in with their families don't fit in with the culture or the religion because they came from outside Utah or they decided it's not for them and there's not really any place for them, especially 20 years ago um, when I first moved to Utah. It's gotten a lot better since then, a lot more diverse. I feel like the whole music scene is kind of created to create another world, a world that you can actually belong to. And um, that's, uh, more of the world that I belong to as well. Like that's where I spend 95% of my time. That's interesting because then it makes me think about those rough years when you were in Texas and were exploring music and horror and all of those other things that were deemed kind of dangerous or, or not acceptable. Um, mm-hmm. And you were doing that by yourself. And now as an adult, you found this community of people that are exploring something at least kind of parallel or that's about something that, you know, it's, exactly. it's still, it's, it's an, a thriving artistic community within this conservative stronghold. And so you guys, you're kind of doing the same thing just with a community of people now. Yes. With like a family. And that's, that's how it feels. Like I do feel like my truest, my truest and deepest self connects with the same things that the people in the music scene connect with. I'm much more, feel much more like myself in that scene um, that I do in like uh, church settings and, and among really, really conservative people. Religious people are just really conservative people like Republicans or something. Um, I, I can, I've learned with time and maturity how to interact and how to, uh, you know, find common ground and be polite and, and how to find something interesting about anyone and try to find something that I can connect with in anyone. But I still feel really alienated, even when I'm having the conversations. I'm still 
uh, I, I feel very, very different from them. So yeah, the music scene is definitely where I feel like I belong. And did you meet Sarah in that music scene? Yeah, we actually worked at an alternative newspaper in, in Salt Lake called City Weekly. And um, we, the minute I saw her, I knew we were going to be friends. And she felt the same way about me. And same with Kim as well. Like, you run across those people who you're meant to be friends with them and, and experience something and have a path together. And I knew that instantly with those two. I met them eight years apart. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd have to say they're two of the most significant people in my life and have meant so much to me. And I'm so lucky to have them as friends. When you decided to start Sobrosa, you wanted to play heavy music, mm-hmm. clearly. But I know that Kim, or I know that, that Sarah was one of the first people that actually joined you to begin mm-hmm. making music, um, right. which is interesting that you being a drummer learning how to play guitar and write, and Sarah being a violinist, um, mm-hmm. it's it's a unique foundation already. Um, and did yes. you have like a vision for the type of music that Subros is doing with the, you know, the hard and the soft happening at the same time um, and kind of adding to each other, um, complementing each other? Well, the violins actually happened completely by accident. Um, people will ask me that, like, did you listen to my dying bride? And I actually had never listened to them. I had not, not, I'd not listened to any music with violins in it or any heavy music with violins in it besides maybe Hawkwind and passing. But, you know, um, I, I didn't know that was really a thing at all. And it's, it is, it is a pretty rare thing, but I wanted to make really heavy music. Um, I wanted to make the heaviest music, the most brutal music I wanted people to, you know, run from the club screaming and like clutching their babies to their chests. And, you know, (laughs) you know, Sarah wanted to join on violin. And so I thought, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm willing to give it a try. And um, because violins are so pretty and so ethereal and, you know, not not brutal. And and it ended up, of course, being the best accident that could have befallen us because the 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 riffs of Sabrosa ultimately are emotional and, and melodic and the violins. I don't know how Kim and Sarah do it, but it's almost like they dig in with their ears and they scoop out the hidden meaning and emotion of the riffs and they bring out um, the feelings behind it that I didn't even know were there. And it's incredible what they do. Like they'll just hear anything I write and within seconds have picked up their violin and are improving some some line that will like make you cry. They they're geniuses, they're alchemists, and I don't know um how they do what they do, but it's amazing. And and so without them, I know Sabrosa wouldn't be in the same place we are today. And so I can't I can't give them enough credit. Um it's interesting going back and kind of reviewing you know, Sabrosa's body of work. I actually didn't even know that there were, I just thought there were the three, the three albums, but there's the two before, um, right. which uh, I just discovered recently and went back and listened to. And I think they're great. Um, mm-hmm. th- it's the same sort of blueprint, but uh, it's, it's interesting looking at how that evolution has happened because it's definitely been sort of a long, slow, a long, slow evolution over five sort of momentous bodies of, of, of recorded work. Um, I wish Thank I could you. find those first two. I wish I could find physical <laughs> copies. They don't, I don't think <laughs> there are any, uh, <laughs> they're very few in existence. Yeah, um, we sure. thought about re, re, uh, printing Strega. In fact, that's a big goal over the next year that I want to do. Um, and maybe even the worm has turned, but swans trapped in ice will remain forever unprinted. We never felt that great about that release. It didn't come out the way we wanted it to. It kind of fell flat. So that one we don't even have on our band camp, but you can find it on YouTube if you dig it up. That was um, an but, EP, right? Yes, it was yeah. an EP. But thank you for saying that about the albums. Like, I feel like we also have evolved a lot over the last, um, it's six albums now, actually, I think. Yeah, some of them were like the first, uh, well, Swans and, and um 
the worm has turned were initially meant to be demos. That's why they kind of fall through the cracks and why I think um, most reviewers forget to or, or don't know about them. They're just they're just kind of I don't know. They're not they're not so present. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the really um, current era of Sarosa, it definitely started with the no help for the mighty ones. Like okay. that's what that's where we, I feel like we fully realized our sound and wrote an album to our sound. Um, in listening to the newest one. Um, for this, we fought the battle of ages. It's got such a long title. Um, I actually, uh, wrote down several hundred other alternate album titles and just could not find one that I liked as much, even though now, um, I wish I could go back and change it because now I have come up with the title. I wish I could have named it. I didn't want to name it something so long. And now I think we would either have called it despair is a siren or, um, glad I kept them blind. And glad I kept them blind certainly fits in with the theme of for this, we fought the battle of ages. Yes. Um, it's the, the album is based on the novel. We, yeah. And so, yeah, it definitely fits in with that dystopian government control. Um, and, and Wound of the Warden, which the, the, the lion is pulled from, is um, actually told from the point of view of the government of one state from, from the novel We. Was that entire record based around that novel? Or were there other things that were brought in? There were actually a few satellite novels that played in. Because We influenced 1984, I went and read, reread 1984. I read um, Darkness at Noon by Joseph Kostler about a, a faithful communist agent who is coming to terms with the idea that he might have, that, that a lot of what he might have followed, his ideology was a lie and uh, coming to terms with that. It's, it's a great book. Um, also, The Brothers Karamazov, The Grand Inquisitor was a big book. The Brothers Karamazov and, and that particular chapter had a big influence on Wound of the Warden. Um, it's practically told from the point of view of the priest from that, from that short story. So it's like, it's like a overlap between that priest and one state from we, like this weird conglomeration. What month did that come out? It came out last year in September, okay. September 2016, I guess. So you yes. were recording at least during the lead up to the election. Yes, we were. Uh-huh. And, and that um, several interviewers have kind of pointed out um, the parallel between what was going on politically in the United States and the release of that album. And it is eerie because we do hit on so many themes that are really relevant now politically. I feel they've always been relevant, but they're more relevant now and they'll only continue to become more relevant. Which is a nice way to actually segue into talking about Troubled Cells a little bit. Yes. Um, that's the last song on the record, and uh, you wrote that and filmed uh, a beautiful video for it. Or, I mean, it wasn't even, it's a, it's a, it's a film set to the music more than anything yeah. in response to the discrimination of the LGBTQ community by the Mormon church, mm-hmm. and specifically um, in response to a more recent action or uh, ruling. Mm-hmm. What was the so now? Some time has passed, um, mm-hmm. and I've watched the, the the film a number of times, and um, it's really. I mean, it is really powerful, and um, I notice different things about it each time, and it really, I think, resonates even more as the months go by, considering our current climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering now that some time has passed. Um, what kind of a response did you get from the church, from the metal community, from the LGBT community? Um, how is it? How how is it sitting um, now, nearly a, a year later? Not quite, but you know, we when we first made the, the video and the song, we really wanted it to be like a sledgehammer and make a huge impact. Um, we wanted it to be kind of explosive because we wanted to make a difference and we wanted things to change in this state. The suicide rates in Utah are some of the highest in the country. And, um, among LGBTQ youth, it's, 
it's risen greatly over the last year and a half or two years since that policy was passed. There's no exact numbers, but there are research groups trying to gather numbers to validate the, that. But there are um, advocate groups who work closely with the LGBTQ community in Utah and um, have reported a huge upswing in suicides, especially among, among teenagers and youth under age 20. So we really wanted to, to make a difference, and we felt that it was important. So the video kind of got pushed back mysteriously by strange circumstances. One thing after another kept pushing it back, and it got released the day before the election. And, of course, we thought Hillary would be elected right. and did not think there was any significant significance to election day in the U.S., not that much. So we released it literally the day before the election, and it got completely buried under the shocking news that Trump was the new president of the U.S. And at the time, you know, I, I, was, I was pretty sad that it didn't make the kind of sweeping impact I had hoped and all of us had hoped. But I actually, looking back, I've talked about it a lot with Kim and Sarah, and we feel like it was actually better that it happened this way. It came out slowly and is spreading slowly and is reaching the people it needs to reach, but wasn't accompanied by a bunch of bombast and drama that might have detracted from the message. And um, we were hoping that drama would uh, potentially help spread the message. But looking back, I think that that might have not been the case. So. We're happy with we're happy with what happened, and little by little, it does seem to be reaching one person at a time. Um, I'll hear from people that, you know, at shows. Um, there was one of my friends at Cycle Las Vegas who I talk with over over Facebook, and he came up and told me that listening to Troubled Cells, it was only the third time we performed it live, and it was actually pretty shaky. <laughs> Still, it's very hard for me to sing. It's a challenge to sing that song live for me. I have to stretch my voice in new ways. Um, so, But we have to because we need to perform that song live, and so I'm working on getting better at it. But he came up to me afterwards and just said how much it meant to him to hear that song and that he cried and that it makes him feel like you know someone is understanding him in the metal scene because because he's he's gay and in the metal scene and he doesn't always feel like he fits in so so i'll hear things like that from people um the most significant stories that meant the most to me were from my own friends close close friends who are lgbtq who have grown up in the church and have come to me and told me um how much the video meant to them and how much it meant to them that we we're trying to do something, no matter how small, and that it they felt emotions when watching it, and that it rang true to them, and they felt like it captured some of what they'd been through, at least some of it, you know? Can never completely capture all of it, the extent of the pain, but yeah. There's something validating about it, just knowing that somebody is paying attention. Exactly. I'm curious, though, after after you've been through this experience and, and the policy passed down by the church, did it change your relationship to the church at all? Yes, it definitely. Um, I'm already uh, someone who questions a lot of things and has had to kind of find my own space in the church. And so I was already, I'm already on the fringes of what's considered acceptable. And I'm already kind of created my own path and, and created a world that I feel comfortable in. So I, I have a problem with authority already. I always have from church authorities to government authorities to social authorities to um, any, any kind of authority of an institution. It even surprised me the impact it had on me, I guess. And it, it just seemed to like break my heart in two. And it, it did that for a lot of Mormons, actually, and for people in and out of the church. It was, uh, it felt very uh, violating, and it felt, it was a reminder of the violence that words can cause, how, how violent words can be. 
you know, the whole adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is not true. Mm-hmm. And the, the, that policy change was made up of words that were very damaging and lacked a lot of empathy. And uh, yeah, it was really difficult. So yeah, something did definitely change in me from that day forward. And um, it's been something I've had to process a lot since then. Is the policy still in effect? Yes, it is. There's been more, more like outreach, I guess you could say. Um, but there hasn't been any real change. And I, the change for me can't come soon enough. And I'm hoping for that. And I'll keep hoping until I die. Yeah, fingers crossed that it's not forever. Yeah, I don't think it will be. So what's next for Sobrosa? So Sobrosa has um, two tours coming up. We're touring with Woven Hand in a week. Oh my gosh, 10 days. And I don't feel ready still. And then we're touring with Boris for a week in October. And then after that, we're having a bit of a break because um, Kim just found out that she's pregnant. Oh, congratulations to her. We're very happy for her. So um, I already kind of wanted to take a bit of a break to work on some other music, like singer-songwriter stuff, I guess. The the Sabrosa Subdued material we did at Roadburn, taken in a a different direction, I guess. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Yeah, so I was already planning on taking a bit of a break, and that kind of coincided nicely. And so that's what's happening okay. over 2018. Yeah. We'll still do some things here and there, I think. But uh, it'll slow down a bit. But it is just a break. It's not a breakup. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's yeah. not. Yeah, it's just a break. Much deserved. Thank you. Sure. Yes, we've been, we've been hitting the pavement hard for about five years, really. Um, we haven't had much of a break since uh, No Help for the Mighty Ones. We, ha- we took about a year off. And haven't had much time off since then. So, do you like touring? Yes, I really love it. And I think you either you have to love it because it's so difficult, and there's so much that that goes into touring, and and the lack of sleep alone is enough to make a grown man cry. <laughs> and uh, I've seen it make a grown man cry, actually. Yeah, it's difficult, and you you have to want to do it. So yeah, and I do. Luckily, it's in my blood. Well, I'm excited to hear your uh, singer-songwriter stuff, too. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I am, too. I have no idea how it's going to turn out exactly, although I did finish a song a few days ago. So I have at least two or three songs in the quiver already, okay. and but I need to finalize them and, and really, like, nail down the sound and then write, like, probably four or five other songs because these songs are a lot shorter than Sabrosa songs, which are, like, 10 plus minutes. So I'll actually have like, you know, a normal amount of songs on an album, like more than eight. (laughs) More than one per side. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's how our vinyl is almost always like one song per side. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the longer form. That's one of the things I really have a good time with, with your music is just kind of settling in and following it, Mm -hmm. um, going through the, the, the different parts, the different motifs. And, you know, it feels like there's some storytelling going on in conjunction with the lyrics. I mean, there is for sure some of that going on musically too. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I'm reading that into it. Um, and so especially with, uh, for this, we fought the battle. I feel like you guys really kind of uh, accomplished that. Yeah. We were actually trying to kind of imitate the template of symphonies or operas. And um, we, the, the idea of a symphony or an opera kind of being the soundtrack to um, an idea, like a theme, or even a story, um, a, a popular story or folk story or something like that, or a legend. And so we took that idea and uh, went with it. For example, Despair is a Siren actually follows the plot points of the novel we in chronological order and the last part of the song for example the last part of the song is a reflection or representation of um the last moments of the female protagonist of the novel i330 in her death throes 
how she dies being defiant of the government that's been trying to destroy her and her revolution that she's helping to lead. And um, so that's the, the whole last part of the song. It's heavy right after that little soft part, the little guitar part. So yeah, um, that's, an, that's something we explored with this album. And actually, um, it really made me want to write an opera. So that's still something that I do want to do. I, it's been pushed the back burner a bit, but I, I really, really want to write kind of a, an avant-garde, like not a typical opera. Do you listen to a lot of opera? Not too much, actually. And so I actually started going to the opera a lot over the last year. And I bought books on opera and writing librettos and things like that because um, I want to write the music and the lyrics. Usually two different people do that for operas and I want to do both. And it, will, it won't be for a symphony. You know, I can't, I can't write for a symphony. At least I don't think I can, but maybe I'll try. <laughs> yeah. But it, it'll be more for like a rock band type of, a type of thing, maybe with some other instruments put in. But yeah, I, I kind of have a visualization of costumes and setting and I just have to find a good story. And, but I already know the energy I want the opera to convey. Well, it sounds like you're well on your way, at least conceptually. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Conceptually, yes. But details, nothing, no details whatsoever. <laughs> so yeah. Well, you've got a while to let that yeah, I've got, work. I've got a while. Thing. I've got the end of my life, I guess. That's how long that is. I always feel it pressing down on me, you know, the passing of time, and I, we're not here forever. So, yeah. Thanks for thanks for talking with me today. You're welcome.
Like a straight on 